0: You've probably seen home improvement shows on HGTV or a network-like network like that, and the host will kind of walk through uh, the house, maybe with some prospective homeowners and uh, kind of point out different things, different features. And then we'll say something like, uh, we need to like do some light. Updates here, some light touches here, but, you know, it's not, not major. What we're looking at is just, uh, is just some minor things. And then they go underneath and they begin to look at the foundation and what they find is that the foundation is rotted away. Uh, that there's maybe significant termite damage or the plumbing is bad. And what they thought was just a minor cosmetic project, turns into a full-scale tear-down and rebuild. Well, our text this morning is a little bit like that. We have a, a wealthy ruler who comes to Jesus with a question about how to inherit eternal life. And the impression we get is of a man who is doing so many of the right things. He follows the law of God, at least... Mostly, he likely has a leadership position in the religious establishment. He is very wealthy. He's interested in self-improvement. He even asks all of the right questions. And so he's likely expecting Jesus to say, You know what? All of this looks really good. Like What we need to do is just some light cosmetic upgrades. But that's not the answer he gets from Jesus. Instead, Jesus' message to this man reveals that what this rich man needs is in fact much deeper. That the rot of his idolatry has gone all the way to the foundation. And that it's impossible for this man to fix himself. What he needs is a full-scale intervention from God. And that's our text for this morning. And I think what we'll find as we move along the way is that this is also a timely reminder for us today as well. And so I've divided the text into three parts. If you're taking notes this morning, the first will be a tragic misunderstanding. The second is an unexpected warning. And third is an eternal promise. Notice first the text begins with a tragic misunderstanding. Now, we're not told a lot about who this man is that asks the question. Luke tells us he's a ruler. It's possible that he's a ruler of the synagogue, which is sort of like a Jewish storefront education center and worship center, or he could be a member of the ...of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, which is sort of like a supreme court. We're not told exactly where he rules and how he rules, but we are told that he's wealthy. And this wealthy man comes to Jesus with a question. Look at verse 18. The word of the Lord says, a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice he doesn't ask how to merit eternal life. He asks what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Now, it could be that what he means is, how do I merit eternal life? But that's at least not what he asks. Essentially, he is asking, how do I enter the kingdom of God? Which may be, in fact, why Luke places this narrative here. Like Jesus has just told us in the previous section how we are to enter or inherit the kingdom of God. We're to enter the kingdom of God with childlike faith. So Luke now slots this teaching in to demonstrate to us what it looks like to not have childlike faith. So... Before we get to what this man did wrong, let's at least acknowledge that he's asking a good question. In fact, this is the kind of question that arises when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is proclaimed, and as it goes out and people hear the message and the Holy Spirit begins to work in their heart, oftentimes the response that people give is a question like this. What must I do to be saved? In fact, this is one of the most important questions any of us could ever ask. It's the question in Acts chapter 2 that the crowd asks after Jesus preaches and heralds the, the gospel. Peter is preaching and the Holy Spirit's at work and the people are cut to the heart and they say to Peter and the other apostles, what must we do to be saved? Throughout the book of Acts, this question comes up over and over again. This is a question that leads to life change. But before answering this man's question, Jesus focuses on the question itself. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone so jesus is essentially saying to this man good like why would you call me good only god is good are you prepared to call me god now this man doesn't ask a question in the way that questions are normally asked in first century judaism it seems as though this man is trying to flatter jesus hey good teacher you are so full of wisdom I followed your ministry from day one. I'm one of your biggest fans, and I know your power, and I know your teaching, and I know your ministry. You're you're a good teacher. Like, you're you're the go-to podcast in the car every morning. I'd love to have a moment of your time. Like, could you answer me this question? And Jesus, not being one to be flattered, asks a question of his own. Meant to point out this man's insincerity. Like, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not saying, I'm not good, only God is good, so don't call me good. It's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is something like this. You call me good, but only God is good, so are you really calling me God? Like, Are you really prepared to stand on what you've just said? Don't acknowledge me as good unless you're ready to acknowledge me as God. And what we'll find out tragically here in just a few minutes is he is not ready to call him God. Because if he were, he would drop everything and follow. This is a reminder, isn't it, that flattery is deadly. That God is not fooled by our insincerity. Now this doesn't mean that if we don't feel like worshiping or don't feel like reading scripture or don't feel like praying that we shouldn't do it. But it does mean that we shouldn't play games with God. We can and we should be honest with him. Even if we don't feel it. We should come before God. God, I don't feel like praying right now. You know that. I know that. I'm not fooling you. But I know that you've called me to pray. And I know that the way through this to a desire to pray is by praying. And so I'm coming to you now and I'm praying. And God, right now, I don't feel like opening up your word and reading. There's 10 million things I feel like I'd rather be doing. But I know that the way to communion with you and fellowship and relationship with you and growth in you. And I know that the way to a desire to be in your word is not apart from your word, but actually through your word. And so I'm coming to you now. but I'm coming to you honestly. Lord, I believe. Help with my unbelief. That's an honest prayer. Help me to learn to trust you even in the dark. Help me to remember your promises and rest on your character even if I don't feel like it. Friends, that's honesty. That's sincerity. And that's what this man lacks. Now, it's as though Jesus kind of leaves that thought to kind of marinate around in this man's mind and he moves to answer the the specific question that this man asks in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So, The question is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we might be surprised that Jesus does not say, repent and trust in me. But in fact, Jesus instead says, what about the Ten Commandments? Now that's surprising to us, maybe at first, but it's not surprising when we understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments. So the purpose of the Old Testament law was to reveal God's holy standard to reveal God's holiness to reveal what he what he asks of us and in so doing to demonstrate that all of us are on our own incapable of honoring the Lord that on our own we are incapable of fulfilling the law that what we ultimately need is someone else to fulfill the law in our place As our substitute. And so Jesus points to the law. You know the law. Like, how you doing with that? And this man responds, right? And we're kind of cringing as he's responding, right? Even as we're reading these words. Because he responds like, great! (laughs) I've kept all of that since I was a kid. Which only highlights his superficial understanding of the law, doesn't it? Commentator David Garland writes, and and this helps, I think, tie in what we've even seen already in the book of Acts, if the ruler has indeed kept all these commandments from his youth, parentheses, he hasn't, but he is like the 99 who need no repentance that we looked at in chapter 15, or the older brother, remember in the prodigal son, who served his father so many years and claimed to have never transgressed one of his commandments. Or the Pharisee who professes that he never committed adultery or other sins. And he joins the list of those who have convinced themselves that they are upright. He does not even ask if he lacks anything. In Luke, his triumphant assertion assumes that he can know where he stands with God according to his measurable achievements on the obedience scale. That he should pass with flying colors. So Jesus responds to him like, really? One thing you still lack. And the thing that you still lack is the very heart, it's the very core of the law itself. Look at verse 22. And When Jesus heard this, he said to him, "One thing you still lack." We might imagine this man thinking, "One thing? I know what the Ten Commandments are, and I've followed all of them. I'm still lacking one thing. What could it be? What's the one? Okay, uh, let me get my paper and pencil. Let me be prepared. I'm, I'm ready for that one. I'm ready for that one thing. Give it to me." And Jesus says, "Sell all that you have." and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus was not adding another work for this man to do to inherit eternal life. What he was doing was revealing this man's heart. He's driving past this man's false sense of merit and goes right to the core of this man's being. Like He's followed externally in his own mind every single commandment. But he hasn't followed the first commandment because he has another God before Yahweh. And it's the God of money. It gets clear that his possessions, his stuff, his bank account, his comfortable living all come before God in his mind. Because he's not even willing to give it up. Like That's a direct violation, in fact, of not only the first, but also the tenth commandment. Which, strategically, Jesus doesn't mention either one of these when he's kind of giving this thumbnail sketch of the Ten Commandments. He was rich. He loved his riches. He was unwilling to lay down his riches so that he might follow Jesus. In other words, he had a a price that he was willing to pay to be one of Jesus' followers. But when it surpassed that price, when it went beyond what he was willing to pay... He was willing to walk away. He was like the Pharisee who had done all the right things, but his heart wasn't right. He wanted the benefit of eternal life without the surrender of sacrificial living. He replaced his direct trust in God and its rewards with earthly riches. It's what we see Jesus Essentially asking is, okay, you're, you're wealthy, but are you willing to set all of that aside to come and follow me? Now, it's important for us to understand this morning that it's not in the act of giving away our possessions that we somehow merit eternal life. If that were true, then we would preach not a prosperity gospel, but a poverty gospel. Blessed are those who don't have much, for they will inherit eternal life. And we know that that's not the gospel. We enter the kingdom of heaven with childlike faith like we saw last week. But like the disciples of Jesus Christ, when he called them to follow, they were willing to leave behind anything that Jesus asked of them. Like they weren't trying to hold on with the Lord Jesus Christ with one hand and hold on to the things of this world with the other. Like they rightly saw with new eyes that the highest value in the world was following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so everything else kind of paled in comparison to that. And sadly, this man does not understand what the kingdom of God is like. He does not understand the the infinite worth of following Jesus Christ, of being a part of his kingdom, of being adopted into his family, of inheriting a kingdom both now and forever. And it's ironic a bit, in fact, I think it's, calculated that Luke would put this teaching here and then shortly after would follow on with the teaching of Zacchaeus who was also a rich man and whose faith reordered his loves. He was a man who didn't give away everything he had but we see how his faith in Jesus Christ reordered his priorities, reordered his affections. And I think we're, we're meant to see the contrast between Zacchaeus, who we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, and this rich ruler here. Verse 23 gives us his tragic response, but when he, this rich ruler, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And I think we see evidence here that this man's failure to hold his wealth with an open hand before the Lord as evidence that he really does not view this man standing in front of him as the son of God, as he should. Like he may have said that he's good. He may have even said, and I know that only God alone is good. But where the rubber meets the road of life and faith, it's clear. That he does not believe that this man is God. Because he's willing to have another God before him. Like to receive, as one author wrote, to receive the treasure he wants, the ruler must give up the treasure he has. And he walks away sad. Sad. And it's good, friends, for us to be reminded that being sad about our idols will not give us eternal life. Like sadness does not necessarily lead to repentance. We can feel conviction. We can feel bad. We can feel badly for our sin. We can feel sad, but that doesn't necessarily lead us to repentance. Only trusting in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the supreme treasure of the universe leads to eternal life. This is tragic. It leads to an unexpected warning, secondly, our second main point this morning, an unexpected warning. Look at verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is an unexpected warning. And it's unexpected because civilization has pretty much consistently thought of wealth as the cure-all for just about everything. Like if you're anxious about money... Just get a little bit more. If you don't have the respect you want from your peers, just demonstrate your wealth by the home you live in or the car you drive or the clothes you wear. Need to make friends? Just be the one then who pays for dinner when you go out. Fearful about your kid's health or about the future? Just purchase a better insurance plan or just drop a little more money in their college fund. And it's likely that Jesus' words here come as a shock to those who are listening, just like it would come as a shock to us today. Especially in some parts of evangelicalism where wealth is seen as a direct indication of God's blessing. And yet, as Jesus is clear here, wealth can be highly dangerous. R.C. Sproul wrote, The wealthy are tempted to rely on earthly things. Together with those whose wealth is achievement in intellect or artistic or other fields, great achievers often find it difficult to rely wholly and humbly on the mercy of God. Great achievers often find it difficult to rely wholly. Humbly on the mercy of God. 19th century British pastor, J.C. Ryle. Have you heard of him before? Maybe a few times? He wrote this. The rich man is seldom dealt with faithfully about his soul. He is generally flattered and fawned upon. The rich hath many friends. Few persons have the courage to tell him the whole truth. His good points are grossly exaggerated. His bad points are glossed over, palliated, and excused. The result is that while his heart is choked up with the things of the world, his eyes are blinded to his own real condition. What right have we to wonder if a rich man's salvation is a hard thing? Now, again, to be clear, the gospel is for wealthy people and for poor people. If you just do a quick Bible survey, you see God used people of incredible wealth and he used people of incredible poverty. We don't need necessarily to sell all our possessions to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus here is addressing barriers to entering the kingdom of God. And riches can be a barrier because of the subtle allure of self-sufficiency that comes with financial stability and with wealth. Let me say that again. Riches can be a barrier because of the subtle allure of self-sufficiency. The subtle allure of self-sufficiency that comes with financial stability, and with wealth. Like wealth can cause us to trust in other things than in the Lord. And even more subtly, wealth can pretend to give us what we need without depending on the Lord. I think that's the reason Jesus warns so often about the dangers, not of wealth inherently, but the dangers that come with wealth, the dangers that wealth can bring. Because when we have wealth, it's easy to depend on wealth and to forget our need. To forget how powerless we really are in the world. Think of all the terrible things that came out of the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the good things was it was, a, it was a clear reminder that even those of us who live in a highly technological, highly sophisticated, highly medically advanced culture like we do here, and not in some third world country, can still experience the uncertainty of life and death that seems to come out of the blue. Reminded us that even with all our great medicine and all our great physicians, and I'm grateful for all of that, like we still are 100% dependent on the Lord. And riches can sometimes dull us to that reality. Because we can pay for the surgery. We can pay to get the car fixed. We can pay to put food on the table. We can pay our bills. We can indulge in retail therapy. We can take care of a lot of problems when we have money. We are a lot less dependent on God and a lot less dependent on others. Or at least can be. Which is why, as one author wrote, those who possess riches can often, if they are not careful, be possessed by them. so Jesus says to all of this, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a knitting needle than for those who trust in their riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And all of this then leads those listening in to ask an obvious question. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Like if the rich, with all the blessings that they have, with all the advantages that wealth brings, cannot enter the kingdom of God, then what chance do any of us have? And Jesus' response may be some of the most hope-filled words in all of scripture when he says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Like what you are incapable of doing on your own, what you will only mess up on your own, God is capable of doing on your behalf. I love the way the ESV study Bible note puts it. It says, salvation for rich or poor is always impossible for humans to attain on their own. So it will always be the gift of God. In fact, all of this sounds a lot like a conversation Jesus had with a religious leader named Nicodemus. In John chapter three, this religious leader comes to Jesus he has all the education he has all the academic credentials as a religious leader in Judaism he comes to Jesus to ask about Jesus's identity and about the kingdom of God and Jesus tells him well what you really need to do is you really need to be born again he's like born again Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is of flesh. That which is born of the spirit is of spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's simply a longer way of saying what is impossible with men is possible with God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work that God accomplishes. How are people reborn? By the powerful working of the Spirit. And how does the Holy Spirit do His work? It's a mystery. It's impossible for us to save ourselves, but it is possible for God, who saves the ungodly, who saves those who, with childlike faith, recognize our need and our dependence and come before Him humbly, asking for His saving grace. And this finally brings us, third, to an eternal promise. An eternal promise. Verse 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and follow you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Just to be real clear here, Jesus is not encouraging us to abandon our families and our responsibilities. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 6 make it clear that we ought to prioritize our responsibilities at home. But sometimes following Jesus means being rejected, by our families and our friends. Sometimes we have to choose. I'm going to either honor my earthly parents or I'm going to honor the Lord because my earthly parents or my earthly family or my earthly friends have made it impossible for me to honor them and honor the Lord. And when we reach that fork in the road, like which relationship do I prioritize, Jesus says it will always be worth it to prioritize the kingdom. Always, because whatever you sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, it will be worth it. It will be repaid many times more by God, both in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. In fact, it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't just say, whatever you sacrifice here in this life, it will be made up for in the life to come, but he also adds, in this time, which should give us hope because it's a reminder that there are benefits and blessings that come to us even in this life. And so if following the Lord Jesus Christ means we give up things in this life, it means that we have to let go of of family members or friends who are unbelieving, who are rejecting the gospel, and who are making it impossible for us to walk faithfully with the Lord. It means it'll be worth it. It means if we have to to part with, with things that are hindering our walk with the Lord. Idols that have attached themselves to the fibers of our heart and our affections and our desires and our goals and our dreams. That are hindering our walk with the Lord. Jesus says it will be worth it. It will be worth it not only in eternity, but it will be worth it in the here and now. That if following Jesus means leaving behind family and friends who reject the gospel, there is another family, and I think it's implied here that that's the church, where we find brothers and sisters and family in this life, even in the here and now. So the question this morning for all of this text is do we actually believe verse 30? Do we actually believe that whatever we sacrifice the Lord, it it will be worth it? Do we actually believe that our sacrifices will look small in comparison to the joys of walking by the Spirit? Do we actually believe that there is nothing that we have given up that will not be rewarded? And if so, have we given up those things that hinder us from running with perseverance the race marked out for us to walk faithfully with the Lord? to set aside the idols that creep in and, and consume our thoughts and crowd out our desire for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust verse 30 enough that we say I'm willing to part ways with those things? That if Jesus were here in the flesh this morning, you were to sit down and have coffee with him after service and he said, one thing you still lack, there's that relationship that is hindering you from walking with me. That's leading you to sin. There's that that hobby that has so consumed your life that you are unwilling to let it go. That it's crowding out your thoughts and your desires and your attentiveness to me and my word and prayer, and the gathering with my people. There's that that dream of the corner office, or the dream vacation, or the dream position that's so consumed you that's become an idol. It's primary in your heart, in your affections, in your desires. Would you this morning be able to say, let goods and kindred go, right? This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. He is worth it. Or would you walk away sad? That's the question. You see, the one thing that this ruler lacked was true surrender. And it's worth everything in the world because it's the gateway to new life. It's the gateway to kingdom life in Jesus Christ. Jesus says you want to love your life, you want to hold on to this life, you want to be in love with the things of this world, you're going to lose your life. But if you're willing to let it go, if you're willing to submit everything to the lordship of Jesus, you will gain in this life and in the life to come. So is that our vision this morning? Is that where our eyes are set this morning? Lord, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my great thought by day and by night. Be thou my vision. And we're going to stand together and we're going to sing that song as our response to the Lord this morning. Feel free to use that time to to maybe pray to the Lord this morning, asking forgiveness if there are things that have become idols of the heart. Maybe a, a prayer of surrender this morning to the Lord, or maybe... It's a song of declaration. God, thank you that these things are true. I declare these. Help me to delight in you more, that you would all the more greatly be the vision, the goal, the priority of my life and my heart and my affections.